Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the, land of the, from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of, out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, and Pezites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are opposing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which you, I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, your God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you, and I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezizites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert, desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. We jump to chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The Lord, the, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. 
Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy, and that's why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the foreman went out and said to the people, This is what the Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, why didn't, meet, why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, Lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep asking, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite foreman, re- 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 the Israelite foreman realized that they were in trouble when they were told, You are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon his people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for your revelation, uh, your gracious revelation to us, the initiative you have taken to reveal yourself to us so that we can know you. As we reflect on this uh, foundational passage of Scripture, uh, we pray that you would indeed uh, reveal yourself more to our hearts and to our understanding and to our lives, we ask to your glory. Amen. Uh, In 2004, whilst I was in the UK, 
Uh, a great friendship blossomed between myself and another young man in the church I attended. I remember him telling me of his sister whose marriage had recently failed and who was now uh, soldiering on as a single parent with a three-year-old child. I thought to myself, how tragic. In 2005, when I came to live in my friend's home city, Sydney, I had the opportunity to meet his sister and three-year-old child. It was interesting to be able to put a face to the name and to hear from her own lips something of her life story. But at the time, I thought nothing more of it. However, as the months passed, I found that the more I observed about her character, her life, and her priorities, the more I came to appreciate her as a person. It wasn't just what she said also, although that was important, but also what she did. She had a tender heart that loved God and wanted to serve him, even in spite of all she'd been through. After much prayer and soul-searching, I find myself uttering to her those life-changing words on the 3rd of November, 2005. Will you marry me? And so, we were married in the space of a year. I had progressed from having a knowledge about her in a distant land to having a husband-wife relationship with her. But of course, as we all know, uh, the wedding is really just the start of the journey. And over the 13 wonderful years since, we have continued to grow in our knowledge of each other as people, and our relationship has deepened. You see, for a relationship to form and to grow, it requires a person, uh, a personal knowledge of a person. It can't just be knowledge that somebody else relays to us about a person. There has to be a personal self-disclosure and engagement with that person. And so it is between us and God. Uh, God has personally disclosed himself to us so that we can have a real, live, breathing relationship with him. He has revealed himself to us through what he has said and what he's done. And the book of Exodus records foundational initiatives by God to reveal himself to us so that we can know him personally. Now, just to remind you where this ties in with what we were looking at last week. Last week, we looked at the promises made by God to Abraham. And we were in, of course, Genesis chapters 12 to 17. These promises made to Abraham represent a turning point both in the Bible and in human history. Uh, these promises are the start of God's initiative to reverse the curse of the fall. And by the time we now get to Exodus, it is 400 years later since God made these promises to Abraham. The promises, of course, of people, land, blessing, and relationship. And when the curtain falls on the book of Genesis, Abraham's descendants are now 70 in number. And they relocate, if you recall, uh, to Egypt to escape a famine under Joseph. And as the curtain now is raised on the book of Exodus, the 70 have become a multitude so numerous that they threaten the established order. The promise to Abraham of a people as numerous as the stars has begun to be fulfilled. 
Uh, this vast, growing, alien multitude in their midst makes the Egyptian government rather jumpy. And so it decides that the best form of control is harsh servitude. And they force these Israelite people into grueling slave labor. And yet, of course, their pride is no surprise to God. Hundreds of years earlier, God had already revealed to Abraham that this would be so. Uh, Look again at Genesis 15, verse 13. This is what God said to Abraham. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. The book of Exodus is about how God begins to fulfill his other covenant promises. Uh, The promise of land. If they are to have a land of their own, they must first be freed from their slavery in a land not their own. That blessing. If they are to enjoy God's blessing, they must first be liberated from the curse of slavery. And by the end of the book of Exodus, the promises of land and blessing, well, they've not really progressed that far. Uh, The numerous people are by that point in the desert. They don't have a land of their own. And the desert is not really a place of blessing. However, there is one of the promises that has been significantly more advanced by the end of the book of Exodus. And that is this, the promise of relationship with God. Remember the promise of relationship with God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. Uh, Look at Genesis 17 verse 7. God says this, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The promise of a special relationship. And this promise now moves to center stage in Exodus. As we will see in future weeks, by the close of the book, massive and dramatic strides have been taken in God establishing a relationship with his people. Uh, By the end of the book of Exodus, uh, Israel knows much more about the sort of God he is. By the end of the book of Exodus, uh, Israel has God's law. And by the end of the book, God is even dwelling in their midst in a tent temple. The foundation of relationship with God is understanding what God is like. And so now God begins to fulfill the promise of relationship with himself by revealing more of himself, by showing the Israelites what he is like. And God begins to now reveal what he's like through his words, but also through his deeds, both through what he says, but also through what he does. And the two go hand in hand, word and deeds. It's worth just pulling into the siding for a moment and thinking more generally about this whole concept of revelation in the Bible. Uh, And I've got a very helpful, what I found very helpful, a little formula, and it's this. Action plus 
Explanation equals revelation. Or maybe it's better to say uh, event. Event plus explanation equals revelation. So, uh, God does something, but he also explains the relevance of what he has done. And when the two go together, uh, we grow in our knowledge and understanding of God. An event without an explanation, uh, it's a bit ambiguous. Uh, It's open to interpretation. Uh, Let me give you an example. Uh, Consider, firstly, uh, Christ's death on the cross. The crucifixion is the event. But that in itself does not constitute revelation about God. There are many reasons that Christ could have died on the cross. Uh, Is he primarily uh, an example of self-sacrifice? Is that the purpose of the cross? Uh, Is the cross basically a case of a man who was in the wrong place at the wrong time? There are many different ways, if we don't have an explanation, that we can understand the event. But God does not leave us in the dark as to the relevance of Christ's crucifixion on the cross. Look, for example, at 1 Peter 3, verse 18, because it states the event, but also then provides the explanation. It says this, For Christ died, there's the event, for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So an explanation is coupled with the event. Uh, Christ died, why? To deal with a problem of sins. He died for sins. And why else did Christ die? Well, it was an act of what we call substitutionary atonement. The righteous taking the place of the unrighteous. And why did he do that? We're told the purpose. To bring us to God. So that's the way that revelation works in the Bible. Uh, event plus explanation equals Revelation. It's also interesting to note that uh, when we chart God's revelation of himself throughout the Bible, something surprising becomes apparent. Uh, God's revelation is progressive. In other words, God reveals progressively more of himself as time goes by and as the history of the Bible unfolds. And it's quite startling to realize this. All of God's self-disclosure of himself and his character It all primarily happens in the Old Testament. Uh, You may not have realized this, but by the time we get to the New Testament, there is actually no new revelation of God's character. Rather, the New Testament assumes that we know what God is like from what he's revealed of himself in the Old Testament. So you see, our study and knowledge of the Old Testament is vital for truly knowing God. And when we get to the book of Exodus, it is foundational in that whole process. The book of Exodus, there is a spike in God's self-disclosure. The Geiger counter of divine revelation goes off the scale. And it starts with God's response to the cry of his people in chapter 2, verse 23. It says this, During that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery, went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And we see that God is stirred to action. And two factors stir God to action. 
Firstly, his faithfulness to his promises to Abraham. And secondly, his compassion for the welfare of his people. God cares. He's concerned for them. And it leads, of course, to God commissioning a man as his spokesperson and as his leader of his people. Uh, In complete disregard for any local fire ban, God appears to Moses in a burning bush. Chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Well, you can imagine the impact on Moses when these words reach his ears. What great news! God is finally doing something about this awful mess. It's time to kick some Egyptian butt. But the smile freezes on Moses' face with the words of God that follow. Verse 10. So now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. You can imagine him. I'm sorry. Did you say me? Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And all the excuses that Moses can subsequently muster are resolved by God. I will be with you. I will enable you. And yet the question, who am I? Then leads to another question. Who are you? And this is a question of supreme importance. Verse 13. Uh, Moses said to God, "Uh, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now it's worth understanding that names in the Old Testament have far more significance than names today. Uh, God's name is much more than just a label by which to refer to him. Uh, God's name expresses his character and what God stands for. Now, in the Old Testament, God introduces himself using many different names. I've counted as many as 16. And each name reveals something of God's character and his nature. And so the question that Moses anticipates being asked is, well, what sort of God is this God? Who is this God? What is he like? And in response to this question, God now reveals a new name which represents a foundational act of self-disclosure in the Bible. Verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation 
to generation. Uh, God actually attributes to himself, in effect, two names here, although they're, they're composite, they're the same name, but there are two aspects to it. Uh, he refers to himself as I am, and then frames it into a statement, I am who I am. And then secondly, he also refers to himself as the Lord in uppercase letters. We represent it in our English Bibles in uppercase letters, the Lord. But in Hebrew, it is the name Yahweh or Jehovah. And in some way, uh, I am informs our understanding of the Lord, uppercase letters, Yahweh, Jehovah. The two complement each other, and they tell us something vitally important about God. You see, at the time, the disclosing of this name was breaking news to the people about God. Uh, Later in chapter 6 of Exodus, uh, God distinguishes between the name he had used in reference to himself previously with Abraham and the name he now uses with his people in Exodus. He says this, chapter 6, verse 2. Uh, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord, that is Yahweh, I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Uh, that is the name El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, that is Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew God as God Almighty. In Hebrew, it is El Shaddai, the powerful, dependable God. But now the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are introduced to the Lord, uppercase letters, to Yahweh, who is the mighty rescuing God. So, uh, let's just tease out uh, what God is revealing about himself. And the first thing we see is this. God God is who he is. Uh, God is who he is. Uh, It's talking about the transcendence of God. Uh, God cannot be explained or described with reference to anything or anyone else. God says, I am who I am. Uh, God is the ultimate reference point from which everything else derives its meaning. Uh, God alone will name himself, and through his mighty acts in history, God alone will illuminate the meaning of his name. I am who I am. A second thing that God reveals about himself is this. God's nature is revealed by God's actions. Uh, The Hebrew that is translated, I am who I am, is in the tense of uh, an uncompleted action. Hence, the phrase could be rendered uh, in an ongoing sense. And if you had the NIV hard copy Bible in front of you, you'd see in the footnote it says, an alternative translation is this. I will be what I will be. In other words, I will be in action what I will be in character. Uh, What God is like will be revealed through His actions. As God's plans are enacted, His character is revealed. And more than any other book in the Bible, uh, in Exodus, God progressively reveals Himself through His mighty actions, what He does. So, as the history of the book of Exodus unfolds, what do we see God doing? 
And what does it tell us about God's character? The third thing we see, therefore, is this. God is the rescuing God. Rescue is the action that God particularly wants to be known by. Now, you're familiar, I'm sure, with uh, that uh, word association game. Uh, Name the first thing that comes into your head when you hear dot, dot, dot. Well, here's a little game for us to play for a minute. Let's see if anything's gone in this morning. When you hear this word, what, what immediately comes to mind? Yahweh. Yahweh. Rescue. Thank you. That's very encouraging, Sharon. Yes, rescue. That is indeed what God wants us to take away. When we hear the word Yahweh, the response should be rescue, because it's rescue out of faithfulness to God's covenant promises that He now acts. Uh, We've already seen hints of this, uh, as in God's dealings with Noah, but this is the first time in the Bible that the rescue has been stressed as being central to God's character. And this is a key component of God's name, Yahweh, the rescuing God who rescues out of faithfulness to His covenant promises. Uh, Look again at God's words to Moses, chapter 6, verse 6. He says this, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, that's Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord, Yahweh. So that's the third thing we're teasing about, about what this tells us about God. God is the rescuing God. But there's a fourth and final thing we're going to see. God is also the mighty judge. Did you notice that not only does Yahweh exercise his power to rescue, but he also exercises his power to judge? And rescue and judgment are two sides of the same coin, and both display Yahweh's astounding power and might. Uh, When Moses first appears before the Pharaoh as Yahweh's ambassador, Representing Yahweh's demands, uh, he gets a fairly short and curt response. Chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. And that question, Who is Yahweh? is the question which the whole of the Exodus events is going to then answer. And the Egyptians, of course, they were polytheists. Uh, They had many gods. And the Pharaoh himself, indeed, was venerated as a god. And the Pharaoh, therefore, sees Yahweh, the god of the Hebrews, as just another deity in a vast pantheon. Why should I obey Yahweh, he says. And unfortunately for him and his people he is going to find out the hard way. He says, I don't know Yahweh. 
but he's going to. Pharaoh is inviting a contest as to ultimately who will be king. However, it's hardly a contest at all. In his delusions of grandeur, Pharaoh fails to realize the reality. This is not two deities slugging it out. This is rather the creature opposing the creator. And in a matter of weeks, Pharaoh will come to realize his folly. Pharaoh's opposition sets the stage for Yahweh to demonstrate his mighty power as he smites all those who oppress him. Chapter 3, verse 19, he says this to Moses. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. And so I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. Pharaoh's resistance will unleash a shock and awe campaign that makes any American military operation look like a child's science experiment. And in so doing, God will reveal more of himself for all to see, both friend and foe alike. God's judgment is as much an act of revelation as God's rescue. And in both, we see the power of Yahweh displayed. So let's close with two strands of application, uh, because we're going to think firstly about how this encourages to trust, firstly, in the revelatory purposes of God in hardships. Uh, At this stage in God's rescue operation, life has got harder for the Israelites, not easier. Uh, Pharaoh has rebuffed Moses' initial approach, and he's asserted his authority by increasing the severity of Israel's slavery. And as a result, Moses and his people start to wobble. Uh, The Israelites bleat to Moses, and Moses, in in turn, complains to God. Chapter 5, verse 22. Uh, Moses returns to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. See what he's saying? What on earth are you doing? Uh, Moses and his people are having that struggle of faith that we all face in hard times. It's that question, why have you brought this trouble on me? It's that temptation to draw premature conclusions. It's that tendency to conclude that God is no longer working out His good purposes. And behind it is the doubt that God can no longer be in control, whatever this hardship may be. And so to Moses, uh, God reiterates what he has already said and reassures that his good purposes will prevail in the end. Chapter 6, verse 1 again. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. You see, the point is this. The evil opposition 
presents the occasion for God to reveal himself more. And as a result of the evil opposition, God's glory is going to shine more brightly. God says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. And it's through what God will do that God will be revealed. I will be what I will be. Just consider this scenario. Say when Moses had gone to Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh had said, okay, they can go. Well, Israelites would be happy. That was easier than we expected. But do you see what would happen? The Israelites would also have an impoverished understanding of Yahweh, the one who has freed them. But that, of course, is not the way it works out. The path will be hard. But that path is also the path of deeper revelation. Because as it now stands, the the stage is set for God's mighty hands to work. And through God's mighty actions, God will truly and deeply reveal himself. And as a result, the people are going to appreciate God's might and his power and his care for them in a way that would have been lost of them if everything had just gone smoothly. You see, God does not only need to rescue Israel if he is to keep his covenant promises. God also needs to reveal himself to her to fulfill his covenant promises. He has promised relationship with them, and that relationship requires revelation. It requires them to know him as he truly is. And if they are to have a real deep and meaningful relationship with God, they're going to need to know him deeply. And that is what often happens through times of hardship. That is what is often true of our own journey. When we go through times when God's apparent inaction tempts us to despair, we need to remember this. God is still sovereign over my life. Even in this seeming setback, God is still fulfilling his good purpose in my life, even through this hard time. And through this hard time, God will reveal himself to me in a way which I would not otherwise have known if everything had gone easily. And is that not our experience? Can we not already look back on our lives as Christians and see times when that has been the case? When our experience of God has been deepened and enriched through those times of hardship, when we really dug deep and said, God, who are you? And why is this happening to me? And those maybe half-baked notions of God, which aren't really grounded in Scripture, are put to the test, and the straw and the stubble is burnt up. And what is left is a refined and deeper and purer understanding of God and His character and who He is and what it means for us in our journey of faith. That's the first implication. And the second implication is this, and it's the encouragement to grow in the knowledge of God as He has truly revealed Himself. If we are to have a relationship with God, uh, it must be on the truth of what God has revealed about himself. Uh, To put it another way, if we don't know what God is really like, we can't have a relationship with him. And yet this grates with humanity's arrogant, sinful desire to control our own lives. 
Uh, the tendency is that human beings fashion for themselves a God with a small g with whom they are comfortable. We tend to shift uneasily in our seats at the prospect of a God who would call us to surrender everything to Him, our relationships, our time, our resources, and our worldview. Now, an extreme and a blatant expression of such a spirit is seen when people say, I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. And often what follows, of course, is a warm, glowing appreciation for God's love, but a cold dismissiveness of God's wrath and His judgment. Uh, they may even wrap it up in seemingly complimentary defense of God. They may say, God is too much a God of love to judge. But do you see what they're doing? At the end of the day, what they're doing boils down to one thing, idolatry. It's the worship of a false God, a God that we have fashioned for ourselves. And such an idol will not serve people well in life because ultimately they will not have a saving relationship with him and it will lead to their eternal downfall. You see, the point is this. The creation does not define the creator. Uh, the creator graciously reveals himself to us, the creatures. And then we live in the light of that revelation. And it is supreme folly for a mere human being to try to redefine Yahweh, the one who is, I am who I am. But also, there's another way in which we can tease out the implication of this. Because the point is this. At a more subtle level, if we are honest, to different degrees we all live with an unbalanced knowledge of God. At Bible-believing Christ-trusting people need to grow in their understanding of God's character too, because at the end of the day, we are all a work in progress. And is that not therefore the life-changing and lifelong challenge of the Christian life? Uh, God calls us to be constantly deepening our understanding of what He has revealed of Himself in the Scriptures. Now, when I look at my own life and my own tendency, I see a real danger here. I don't know if you're like me, but I find that I've got a real delight in data. I like to mine the Bible for data, but the question is this, do I end up doing anything with it? And I think that is the challenge for all of us. Uh, we may well get the data about God from the Bible, but are we doing anything with it? Is it translating into a deepening relationship with God? Uh, to use the metaphor of making bread. Uh, are we making time to knead the yeast of data about God into the dough of relationship with God? It's quite clever, isn't it? I should claim that for myself. I'll patent it. But that is the, the challenge, isn't it? Uh, we need to not just have data about God, but it needs to be translating into relationship about God. And so it's vital that our knowledge of God is constantly deepening. We're doing that in this overview series. We do that as we engage with Scripture. Uh, we do that also as we read good Christian literature. Uh, again, I would commend to you that wonderful book, uh, Knowing God by Jim Packer. Uh, the reference is on the bottom of your handout. 
uh, because, of course, uh, that is a great book to engage with. I encourage you to go to the part two, uh, Behold Your God, because the part one is a bit hard to work with, and some people get derailed in the first part. Go to part two, and why not work through that? Uh, Each chapter is um, a reflection on different aspects of God's character. Uh, Very meaty, so it's not the sort of book you read in one sitting. Maybe a chapter a week or a chapter a fortnight, but why not engage with that as well as a resource to deepen our understanding of God's character and who He is. Is that my time off? Thank you. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, thank You for Your gracious revelation of Yourself to us. Uh, without Your revelation, we'd, we'd have made Thee in the dark. Uh, we thank You of what we see are of your words, but also your deeds, which reveal to you, us to your character. Help us to therefore live in the light of what you revealed to us, to have a deepening relationship, not just of uh, a gathering pool of data and knowledge, but something which translates into a relational, living, breathing, trusting relationship with you, one which uh, carries us ultimately into the new creation uh, and which uh, undergirds every day of our lives, we pray, to your glory. Amen. Uh, Can we send words to the people in Kinshasa?